0: Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Jeff Rediger, Jeff is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and a medical director at McLean Southeast Adult Psychiatric Programs who holds a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. Jeff is the author of the book Cured, which details and explores examples of spontaneous remission and discusses various aspects of human health. During our conversation, Jeff talks about what qualifies as a spontaneous remission what might be causing diseases that had been deemed incurable to disappear, and his four pillars of healing, nutrition, healing your immune system, healing your stress response, and healing your identity and beliefs. Jeff also discusses what may be causing many environmentally influenced diseases, how chronically stressful relationships and environments can cause life-threatening illnesses, and the importance of love and community in a healthy life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff. Rediger. Jeff, it is a real honor to be able to to talk to you and to um, dig into your work. I know we've been emailing for a couple of weeks now, and I've been um, digging into your book and your interviews and your, and your lectures. Um, it's really great to have you on the show, man. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I know today we're going to try to focus on kind of the big components of your work. And there's so much in your personal biography that I think is really interesting. I mean, I know about your Amish upbringing and the fact that, um, you know, that has had a huge effect on your life. You know, your just credentials seem to indicate to me a real interest in both science and religion. Um, I think as I was talking to people in the last week or so about the fact that I was talking to you and I was, um, articulating kind of the primary points of your book, which, you know, I read to be mostly the mystery of uh, spontaneous remission and just health in general for human beings. Maybe we can kind of start with those two points, and maybe we can begin with the spontaneous remission. That always seemed to raise people's eyebrows when I um, brought this up in conversation about what your book, Cured, is is um, at least partly focused on. How did you get interested in spontaneous remission and maybe we could just start to dig into what you began to find I know through a, a nurse who encouraged you to go to Brazil and and your own investigation into South America you can take that conversation and that that question wherever you'd like to but I, I'd love to you know document that story and, and share it
1: yes well that's true that one level of this story occurred shortly after I finished residency. I was a new young medical director at McLean Hospital and faculty member at Harvard. And and this nurse, uh, this oncology nurse from Mass General came to me in Boston, and she wanted help explaining um, her pancreatic cancer diagnosis to her son. Um, And pancreatic cancer is a terrible diagnosis. It's one of the worst cancers. It usually has a short, brutish, painful end. Uh, By the time of diagnosis, it's usually Spread quite a bit, and there's not a lot that can be done in terms of treatments uh, and so so we spoke about that with her son and then she took off for a healing center and then began writing me and calling me saying that she was getting better she couldn't believe it she was starting to eat steak and salad again and feeling a lot better and she came back to the United States um, went back to this healing center with her children and continued to have this amazing trajectory uh, she was just. Giving up a lot of fears, becoming more vibrant and more alive and and she thought that since I had this dual background in medicine and theology, that maybe I'd uh, want to look into it and and I declined. I didn't think there was likely to be anything there that was uh, couldn't be explained by traditional um science. Uh, but I owe a lot to Nikki, and she continued to be persistent. She began calling people around the country and um, suggesting they send their medical files to me. And so, as people contacted me, I um, f- continued to say no for a while. But then, as people were sending me these files, um, most of them I could explain from a traditional standpoint in medicine, but some of them I couldn't. And the long and the short of it is in 2003, I did begin to look into this. The first few years were confusing, um, and so trying to figure out how to set up the the medical criteria to, to really figure out what was going on here. Um, most of the time when you hear these stories when you begin to uh, look into the medical evidence or you begin to ask for medical evidence the stories begin to dissipate and disappear and and it's um it's complicated because every illness has its own trajectory has its own kinds of proof it has its own um uh, trajectory in the sense that some medis- some illnesses are fatal no matter what you do some illnesses are fatal unless they um, receive certain kinds of treatment like chemotherapy or radiation and then they're highly responsive to treatment some are not responsive to chemotherapy or radiation but are highly responsive to surgery other um, illnesses are uh, wax and wane and a person may Die with the illness, but but not from the illness, so every illness is distinct in its own way, and a lay person's not going to know a lot of those things and and most doctors don't even know unless it's their specialty to know these things and so to look into these illnesses and set up an unassailable set of criteria so that you have medical evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery um that's takes a lot of time to dig into that so mm-hmm. i set up three criteria i i i said that in the first place i wouldn't look at any illnesses that were not genuinely incurable from uh, the normal medical standpoint uh that's the first criteria the second tr- criteria was the person had to have clear evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery it needed to be indisputable evidence and then number three a no uh No experimental medications or anything else that could potentially explain how they got better. So those three criteria over a number of years began to really separate out uh, truth from fiction, Hmm. um, truth from wishes or hopes that one's getting better, and and began to really create a path through this.
0: Yeah. And I know this you know, obviously not everyone gets cured, not everybody recovers, but some do. And I think that as you just articulated, it were the people that you wanted to focus on. And this must be the natural next question that you always get. What did they do? What did what worked? How do you make sense of how some of these people recovered? And maybe if you could give some context to the the type of diseases that people were facing that, you know, kind of mystified you and the medical community as to how they could have recovered from such an illness?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was, it was this this investigation over a period of nineteen years so far has uh, personally and professionally changed the way I view so many things. It's been quite an upheaval in my own understanding of what it means to be a physician, how I was trained as a physician, why we don't look at these things in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, why we should why we have a moral obligation to be looking into how people heal Um, it's um, so what's your question again your question to make sure I get this exactly
0: I guess maybe to focus that rambling question I just asked you is is to focus on um, how you make sense of how some of these people in retrospect given the the amount of research you did how were they able to recover from I know glioblastoma is one of them that you mentioned in the book is it is it still a mystery or how do you tend to make sense of what what happened to them how they recovered
1: yes so this is a new terrain to map that needs to be mapped by gathering medical evidence like this it's astonishing we don't study this kind of thing in medicine it's not a one size fits all it's not like you can just uh, take a certain set of steps that worked for one person and apply that to the next person and think that's going to take care of this, it's a personal journey. And even though there are the four pillars that I identified and write about and Cured, those pillars have to be adapted to the particularities of each person's life. um, Because, for example, just the whole business of nutrition, which is the first pillar, uh, it's not like you can just say, well, if you take this diet, that's going to do it. I think what happens is that all of us uh, grow up in the context of the Western diet, which is toxic as some level to the human body. And there are certain enzymes that just get worn out over time from yeah. trying to uh, metabolize foods that are not made for the body. And so you can't predict for each person which enzymes going to break down and leave them un- unable to take care of a food in a healthy way. So, and there's just hundreds of thousands of enzymes in the body. and So which one of those break down is going to be different for different individuals. And so to provide the healthy foods that help compensate for the challenges that have occurred over time, you have to start to really get to know what your body is saying to you. You have to start listening to the messages of the body so you begin creating just even in the pathway of nutrition, something that works for you, even though that might be somewhat different from the other person. There are certain principles that one sees over and over and over again with these individuals, but again, it has to be tailored to your particular life.
0: Yeah. And I'd love to, for you to speak about those principles. What, what are the, the general principles that are found in people who have these kind of miraculous, for lack of a
1: better word, remission stories? The four pillars, as I outlined them in Cured, are number one, healing your relationship with nutrition. That's a very big topic uh, because there's so much confusion about nutrition, even among doctors and nutritionists and nurses. It's quite shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, I can tell you where I was sitting and exactly what was said during the very brief nutrition education that we got (laughs) in medical school. And I can tell you that it was upside down and absolutely wrong, and I did not know that until I spent years listening to people who actually have evidence for getting better, and what they figured out about nutrition is completely upside down from what I was taught in med school, and that I can go into that as deep as you want, <laughs> it. but I, I, think, I think the trifecta between industry um, like the the food companies and the way they interact with the academics who are paid to get certain results in the studies that support the sale of these foods, mm. and the way that then interacts with government recommendations and lobbyists, and uh, you know it's science, but it's spin science, and so it's it's got a business um, agenda that makes it different than just pure science. And one mm. just and so the amount of misinformation around this stuff um and the amount of money that goes into creating certain uh results it's it's unfortunate that that doctors and nutritionists and nurses are misled as much as the normal person out there yeah so this is slowly improving over time there now are books that are very accurate and helpful and not biased um and that's a massive Beginning of uh, this new path of democratization in medicine and people getting in charge of their own health with better information—that is starting to occur, but uh, it unfortunately hasn't permeated through to the levels of the professional sciences yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and so that's one pillar. The second pillar is healing your immune system. That's a very big topic as well. We can go into. There's the third pillar: healing your relationship with stress that's also a big topic. But then the fourth pillar is really the big one. This is where the money is. It's also (laughs) the most abstract and difficult one to get your mind around. But this is where people sit up straight, they get a light in their eyes, and they want to make sure I really understand this piece of their recovery, because this is why they're grateful in retrospect for the illness, because it gave them a level of well-being and a quality of life and an experience of their own value that you just, you can't buy. You can't make this stuff up. Um, and it's 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 why people want to tell me their stories and why they're grateful for the illness. Yeah. And that's the it, healing of identity and false beliefs.
0: I kept thinking about when I was reviewing your book and delving into your, you know, your research and your interviews and your lectures about, you know, all of these best selling books that are kind of under the radar from mainstream universities like the book, the body keeps the score, Yeah, you know, Gabor Monte has a new book out called the myth of normal. I'm going to talk to (laughs) his son in about a month about that book. And you know what I I believe, what the, one of the primary points of the, of those, you know, pieces of literature and those two men are, is that, you know, they, they take an approach to health that is holistic in totality you know the yes. totality of everything that goes into who you are, what you eat, who your relationships are with, what those relationships are like. You just went over the four pillars yourself of how you think, um, how you think about those four different pillars, and um, you know it, it might be helpful for people who have not yet read your book to learn about what some of these people did who did, who recovered, you know, Brazil features pretty prominently and it seems like various people made fairly drastic, bespoke, um, changes in their life that led to massive alterations in their own illness. You know, sugar plays a, a big role. Diet plays a big role. Um, what do you think, you know, I know you've been down there. What is, what's the role that You think brazil might be playing in these people and that environment and that approach to life uh that seems to be having a a pretty you know health giving entity and um effect on human beings who go down there with some pretty serious illnesses
1: yes uh and that was a life-changing exploration for me for sure i really appreciate that you mentioned bessel and gabor Um, yeah it's really relevant here because Bessel says, you know, the body keeps the score. Uh, The body tells the story if we have the ears to listen. And we should be helping people listen to the messages that their bodies are giving because an illness is a message to the body. It's saying that something is out of whack in your life. Something is out of balance. And let's not just rush to only treat it with medication. Let's ask what the deeper message is here. 85 to 90% of illnesses are... Lifestyle illnesses and all the major killers: heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, uh, cancer, autoimmune illness these by and large are lifestyle illnesses and we used to think it's all genetic, and once we map the genome it 's going to begin to heal this stuff, but that proved to not be true because genes can be turned and off by lifestyle mm. and so and then Gabor you know says, if you don 't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. I mean, what a powerful message if you don't know how to say no your body will eventually say no for you our hospitals our clinics around the country are full of people who don't know their value in a way that they know they have to say no to a situation to focus on what's right for them you can give your whole life away your life energy taking care of everyone else but yourself yeah and that's massively costly and the body begins to give messages for a while and then eventually breaks down yeah so so yes um brazil was really uh factored significantly for me in my early years of learning about this uh, and originally i thought well you know these people are going down to these healing centers they're changing their nutrition radically this is uh, not completely vegetarian but it's very healthy um local foods uh it's not no processed foods virtually. It's all uh, lots of vegetables and fresh fruits. And and it's got to be such a biochemical change for the body to not be getting, you know, just all the croissants and refined flours and the uh, 154 pounds of annual sugar per year that the average American eats, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, it's uh, massively different. Uh, and so I thought initially that might be playing a big role. Um, and I think that does play a role, but like you said, we're not just, um, physical beings. We also are emotional and spiritual beings. And so we have to begin looking at the different aspects and levels of our being and paying attention to what each level needs.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you just mentioned this and I, I think this is not, you know, as a kid, I've mentioned this on this show before. I remember being taught about the food pyramid which i know you have spoken about um before in terms of the the amount of carbohydrates and um you know flour-based foods that cereals and breads that were a huge part of my own diet and my own upbringing and never once did i think about linking what i was putting in my body with the psychological effect that it might have on my lethargy or my bad mood um, you know, of the four pillars that you talked about earlier, the one that, you know, you, you said tends to kind of bring a spark to people's eyes is, is related to their identity. And I have to think that might be related too to what we were just talking about with, you know, the, the books by Gabor Mate and, and Bessel, um, the body keeps the score. And maybe we could focus on that a little bit because I think, you know, <laughs> I know, you know places like Brazil, in many ways, it seems to me, have a much deeper perspective on health in general than we tend to have in this country. Given all of our scientific advancements and fancy tools, you know, they do seem to treat the mind and the body as it really is, which is one entity. Um, and maybe we could talk about identity and ways in which, you know, you have seen stories of people who, for example, exit a truly toxic work environment or a truly toxic personal relationship that may have been going on for decades and that is causing, has caused chronic stress or some sort of chronic dis-ease in general in a person that has led to very likely some sort of reaction from the body. I know you talk about, you know, autoimmune diseases oftentimes as being uh, a component of that. And I've heard Gabor talk about ALS in many ways Mm -hmm. in, you know, I had never heard this before I came across his literature that it's commonly understood by nurses who treat ALS patients that they're known as, you know, unless someone is exceedingly nice and ingratiating there's no way that they have als and his general point was that these are people in general like lou gehrig himself who have been giving and giving and giving and never really taking care of themselves their whole life and it's his view that in many cases the als is essentially the body coming back and being at war with your own your own identity um, it's a long statement there, but I, I'd love for you to talk about the identity part in, in terms of health and how that may be related to remissions that that you've come across.
1: Yes, well, autoimmune means self-attacking, and so the brilliant immune cells, which are so specialized, you get all these subtypes of immune cells. That you have the the T cells, you have the B cells, you have all these uh, subtypes that are just so intelligent about going out and finding the pathogen or finding the invader or creating a strong, robust uh, immune system that can kick out problems or kick out the mutating cells that would become cancer if they're not detected and kicked out. So Mm -hmm. it's a brilliant system. But when that system begins to break down and begin to attack the body that was sworn to protect, that's called autoimmune. Mm -hmm. And most of the illnesses that are causing suffering and killing people are autoimmune. And so ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's, or um, MS, um, diabetes is autoimmune. Um, Most forms of heart disease are autoimmune. Most cancers are autoimmune. And that's a breakdown of the immune system that has become chronic inflammation attacking the body instead of helping you be vital and healthy. And so... It's a big topic. Um, I think one can influence that system through the biology from below by healing the neurochemistry of getting rid of the constant secretion of stress hormones that create this milieu of kind of this acid that just is causing the cells to... uh, just not be able to function properly. And they start to make mistakes. And also through giving the body the kind of dense nutrition that allows the body to heal. Uh, But also you can heal this from above as well through the kinds of emotional and spiritual nutrition that you're putting in your body. You raised the idea of what toxic stress is. And that's a very important distinction because too many uh, books that I've seen Talk about eliminating stress and eliminating stress can be important, but do you really can <laughs> you really eliminate rush hour? <laughs> no. <laughs> can you eliminate all the stress that's involved with raising children or having a newborn or taking care of an aging parent or dealing with friends that just put you through the roof or a partner <laughs> that puts you through the roof? No, you can't. And, um, and but there's a big difference between toxic stress and what we call eustress or growth stress, uh, challenge stress, running it. I'm a runner. I like to run and that's stressful and I don't always enjoy it, but, (laughs) but you know, running a marathon can be a great thing if it helps you reach into your higher self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. That's really different than, uh, than every day being bathed in a really high level of stress hormones that just eats at your body and your, health, Uh, like coming home from work every day to an environment that just has the drip, drip, drip of comments that are negative and see you as if there's something wrong or not good enough about you, and that just wear down your capacity to experience the Beauty and dignity and value of what you bring into the world, uh, or a work environment that uh, is more of the same—that just uh, doesn't um, have a climate that is life creating and built on what is right and valuable about you—and that's that's toxic stress. And so, in that kind of situation, a person has to either change their relationship with the stress, change the way we relate to it, or you need to find a way to leave that stress because. Mm. Ultimately, toxic stress does create disease, and um the cost is just too high and I can't tell you that I could tell you stories of a woman who who had had uh lupus uh and had been sick since she was fifteen years old. I met her in her forties, and you know she'd been so identified with illness she'd been on twenty medications for much of her life she um and so the long story short is jan i write about her in care jan and mm. got got you know she had end-stage lupus when she first went to uh, see this healer and uh you know lupus can be a terrible burden of an illness uh and it's even worse if it becomes end-stage lupus and what it gets into your liver into your kidneys into your heart into your brain and that's where she was Starting to have multiple organ shutdown and was close to death uh, when she went to this place, her doctor didn't think that she could go there safely and survive because he was concerned that she was a matter of weeks from death. Um, well, long story short is she got better. She came off of all of her medications and um, completely uh, uh, recovered, and recovered to such a degree that she went back to. Um, Uh, Idaho, where she'd lived and went back into a marriage in a work environment that she experienced as toxic and became ill again. And so she went back to Brazil and again, got better, uh, came off of all her medications and realized, okay, for her, she was going to have to change her environment because it was toxic to her. So that's what she did. And she left those environments, got better and stayed better. And it's wild because she would go back to Idaho and walk down the street and see people that she had known since she was a teenager, and they didn't recognize her. And when you see the photographs of before and after, it's just shocking hmm. because she didn't look like the same person. And so so the fact that people didn't recognize her was a sign of how not only her health had changed, but how much her identity had changed, her way of carrying herself, her... Um, outlook her way of being in the world she was just a vibrant healthy happy glowing lady when i met her but boy you look at these photos and you can see why wow this does not look like the same person yeah so um so it was about healing a lot of things around her biology but it was also about healing this deeper experience of her value and standing up for herself and setting boundaries around what she would tolerate or not tolerate and where she needed to say no and Mm to accept what was not her responsibility to fix or to keep running around as if this was her problem to fix someone else's issue. And so that that for a mom, that can be a really big deal or for a wife or for a partner. um, It's very hard to see clearly the toxic brew that if a fish doesn't know what wet is, it doesn't know anything else. And And She didn't know anything else in the early stages, and so to begin to recognize that she had value and the right to know her rights as a human being and to set limits and get a life where she could be healthy, that's a massive journey. It's not just following the steps. It's about self-discovery and waking up to one's own level of suffering, becoming aware that she was suffering far more than she had any idea about.
0: Yeah. It's such a good point that if you're in that kind of water, you don't often know how unwell you are until mm-hmm. somehow you snap out of that. You know, a subject I know you bring up in your book quite a few times is the subject of love. And, you know, just as as in my own life as an American, you know, in terms of health, I often thought of, well, I need to eat certain types of food. I need to um, probably exercise a few times a week. I don't think we generally as a culture incorporate th- that concept in health, you know, which comes through, you talk about the vagus nerve and how communicating, even in these little micro moments with people in your daily life, whether that's your, your partner or really even more just kind of acquaintances in your community can really boost your, uh, you just mentioned this about this woman, your, your vitality and general look about yourself, and this is a podcast episode I hope to be doing in the next few months with the author of the Blue Zone book, which delves into people who disproportionately live in areas of of the world where there are centenarians—people living past a hundred—and again, like I, I had to think about that concept in reading your book in the sense that one of the primary components. In these areas seems to be community Mm. and people who feel connected to other people and there are nutrients just like there are nutrients in a great salad of having wonderful relationships. And if you don't have that in your life whatsoever, you can wilt and you can you can really suffer Um you know, I know we're getting a little bit short on time, and maybe we can, you know, continue this conversation at some point in the future. But I'd love to maybe focus the last part of the this conversation on advice you would have for people who have just gotten some sort of a ter- you know terminal quote unquote illness or a diagnosis of having, for example, an autoimmune disease. And I don't think it's your point that we know definitively how to help all of those people. To me, your book is more of a consciousness-raising exercise of we need to start thinking a little deeper about um, other options that might be available to people to to help them. I don't know if you would agree with that in general, but what advice would you give to people who have just been given some pretty terrible news to what they might want to tinker with to try to see if it might actually help them?
1: Yes. Good topic and a big topic. Um, I think, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is just just to have some compassion here. And I think, and, and for the person who is experiencing that, to have some compassion for themselves, I think it's such a scary thing. We, you know, and I don't have all the answers here. We all yeah. are going to die at some point. The point is not to, in every situation, to find a path to recovery, there's so many people who I see. Uh, you know, I've been medical director at a psychiatric hospital for 20 years. I also, for 14 of those years, was the chief of behavioral medicine at a large urban medical center. So I've seen both sides of this. And I've seen so many people get diagnosed with a fatal illness, like a fatal form of cancer or something. And at one level, they will be terrified. But at another level, they'll, they'll actually be relieved. You know, it's like, uh, boy, well... You know life's been really rough. Uh, there's been a lot of trauma, been a lot of expectations maybe maybe now I don't have to take over the family business, like mm. different' with putting pressure on me or there's a way out, you know um and so it's in that and so different answers are right for different people, and um what a person may feel pressure to want. Because of loved ones, or whatever may be different than what at another level they're feeling, and so you just want to have some compassion for just what people endure, and uh, and uh, and and then the next step when a person feels ready, and this is not something that happens immediately, but but to maybe ask, um, what is the message here? What is is there a message that my body is sending me? Uh, is there something that is? That needs attention. Um, our bodies, I think, are a metaphor for something that the deeper self or psyche is trying to tell us, or the, or some people use the word soul. You know, mm-hmm. what is if if the body is a metaphor for something that the deeper self is trying to tell us, what is that? And do we want to listen to that with some compassion and some openness? So that is itself what can become a different trajectory. What I've seen over and over is that when a person is diagnosed with a fatal illness, that what can become shocking is a person will prepare to die. And I tell this story frequently in Cured, for example, with Claire, the first story in Cured, uh, diagnosed with uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, the worst form of pancreatic cancer by biopsy it was diagnosed, so we know it was a correct diagnosis. So she prepared to die. She knew she had a number of months to live. And it was in the context of preparing to die and wanting to finish well um, and wanting to focus on spending time with loved ones during the brief time that she had left uh, that uh, a new life began to grow in her. Uh, she gave up this false self. Uh, she let go of the need to please others. Mm-hmm. She, the need to please others who'd been very critical of her and that she never felt good enough in terms of pleasing. And And so, in that That release of this old self that was always trying to please others and run around and be good enough and giving rise to a more authentic version of her where she was uh, wanting to just simply enjoy those that she cared about and finish well and forgive those that um, she harbored some uh, difficult feelings for, that began to increase her vitality and um, then time began to go by. And so sometimes, even though she was preparing to die, uh, because she became more authentic in the life she was living, uh, it began to change this trajectory for her. And then so she was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008. She had a CT scan uh, for related reasons uh, in 2013, and her cancer was gone. And at that point, she'd far outlived any um, conceivable explanation by her doctors. And so I tell her story about how that continued to unfold for her. And it's it's very humbling and heart-touching, heart-opening for me to hear these stories and the emotion that's associated with them and and what it means to die to a less authentic version of who we are so that we can... Mm-hmm. Experience the dignity and value of who we are, and know that we're worth it. That there's something, an unrepeatable, goodness and value that every one of us brings into the world. That when we can experience that, it's it's quite shocking what can happen sometimes. Yeah. You used the word
0: psyche earlier, and I, I just have to sneak in one one last comment and question for you. You know, I, I think one of my favorite interviews I've done on this show is with Jim Hollis, who's one of the World's leading Jungian psychoanalyst who talks oh, yeah. a lot about these exact points of honoring something very deep. And in my mind, you know, there's a lot of overlap with the two of you because it's my view that so many people in our culture are desperate for something deeper. And in the wake of people losing religion, people are trying to find how to connect to something deep in themselves. And one of the questions he often asks his patients with depression is why has this come? Um, Maybe if we could close on this of how you think about, you know, with the patients you've mentioned during this conversation and others about how people can begin to, you know, perhaps honor something in themselves a bit more in, in our culture and, and resist, Um, the need to be perpetually a people pleaser and to always go along with the crowd I'd love to maybe get some closing comments from you about some wisdom related to that for for your
1: patients yeah you know I think you raised the the idea that we all need community and boy if there's one thing you don't uh, learn as a doctor or a psychiatrist Uh, what you learn is how lonely people are how isolated people are how often we use distractions whether it's food or alcohol or drugs or overwork or sex Mm -hmm. or so many things as a way to fill this void of not not having authentic connections with ourselves and others and i think Mm -hmm. i think there's something in the deeper psyche that doesn't rest until it experiences unconditional love Mm -hmm. i think that we scan the environment all the time We're looking to experience that and ultimately that has to come from within in terms mm-hmm. of experiencing our value and building a life on that. But also we need that in our relationships as well to feel seen and valued and and cared for so that we don't need to fill the void with things that don't work. Yeah. Um and I, I so I think what is it what is a practice and it varies for different people, but what is a practice that helps you really experience an unconditional regard that you can feel, and it's critical to feel it, not just think it but to feel love for that little child who was so misunderstood on the playground in junior high or abused um in such an awful way at some point in relationships or that or that felt invisible uh, for a long period of time around uh, situations that maybe were not intended but still were real and and when a per you know a child they uh, you know this whole thing about not knowing what wed is if you don't know anything else the child just experiences life at a young age without being able to make an object of it and say oh well that person's being mean to me uh and that means they have a problem no the child 100 percent of the time will interpret it as that means there's something wrong with me i'm not good enough if the if the parent just simply has a bad day they may be angry and lash out but the child won't see that as the dad having a bad day they'll experience it as part of the just world hypothesis, which means the world is just, I'm being treated badly because the world is just, that means I'm Mm -hmm. bad, there's something shameful or not good enough or not worthy of me, and I'm not, and and so love becomes conditional in terms of how one begins to experience it, and that just sets off over time a set of false beliefs and perceptions that can be really limiting and costly and uh creates a biochemistry mm. uh with the stress hormones that just is toxic to the body over time. Yeah. So, you know, you want a person that has a path that through that just is on a daily basis taking some time to remind and experience and feel one's value and 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 infinite unrepeatable goodness that this person uniquely brings into the world. Um there's Ultimately, there has to be a path that one can feel around that if one's going to begin to heal.
0: Yeah, it's so simple, but there is really no substitute for that, having that kind of love in your life and how that can affect you as a person and, and help. Um, I know this conversation is significantly shorter than I certainly was was hoping for today, but I really appreciate you doing this and um, you know throwing yourself into this work. I think it's extremely important, and I know it will help. It already has helped many many people um jeff it was really great to meet you and talk to you man
1: really pleasure to talk to you thanks for your great questions likewise thanks man bye
0: thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking if you're finding value in this podcast please consider supporting the show via the links below on venmo paypal or patreon your support helps to make these conversations possible